You're listening to the Exhibitionist Podcast, hosted by Nicola Reader, and brought to you by InspiringExhibitors.com and ProExtra, a wholly owned subsidiary of 12 Man Solutions Limited. Hi there, and welcome to episode 31 of the Exhibitionist Podcast. I'm your host, Nicola Reader, and let me begin by wishing all of our listeners a very Merry Christmas indeed. So no long introduction from me on this episode. We are going to bring you our best bits of 2019. We've had some fantastic guests on the show this year and we thank you all for giving up your time to speak to us. So we thought to round the year off in style, we would bring you some of the best conversations that we've had. So as you'll appreciate, we have recorded these conversations across the year at different times and in different locations. So there is going to be a little bit of variation in the quality and the volume of the clips that you're going to listen to. But please bear with us. They are all definitely worth persevering with. So our first conversation, we are handing over to Daniel Priestley. Now, if you remember, Daniel is the author of Key Person of Influence, and he talked to us about how you can use exhibitions to build your profile and influence in your industry, and also what to avoid getting wrong at the next exhibition you're attending. So over to Daniel. Thinking about um, events, live events and exhibitions, which is mainly where we work and where our our listeners work, um, how have you seen people use things like conferences or exhibitions to build their influence and, and build their profile within an industry? Yeah, well, look, I'll start by saying how how it's how I see people not doing it well <laughs> okay so so I see people um turning up and essentially standing on their stand and expecting people to come up and talk to them and and get ready to pull the credit card out or put, you know fill in the purchase order form um and then they end up very disappointed that that doesn't work and like anything um it works if you work it so um, like a CRM system, you can put a CRM system into your business and have it completely sit there and not add any value, or you can put a CRM system in and have it become the backbone of your organization and it, you know, is totally transformational. So it works if you work it. So um, when I see companies that do really well at exhibitions, they do things like uh, take speaking spots as well as stands. Um, so that they position themselves as a key person of influence by having one of the speakers on the on the stage. Um, and obviously with those type of events now, there's multiple stages um, uh, that you can be uh, you can be speaking on. Uh, they engage on social media before, during and after the um, conference. So you know they find find out what are the hashtags, they look at people who are checking in by location. Um, they message them using social media saying, hey, we're at Stand 403, why don't you come across and have a chat? Um, we'd love to meet you. Um, they follow up after the event, um, you know, saying, hey, we missed you at, uh, at the event, saw that you were tweeting about the event, um, would love to uh, continue the conversation. Um, so they do that. They, they get photos of themselves speaking and they post it on Instagram and perhaps a video and they post that on YouTube. Um, so those are those are some of the ways where you can start working an exhibition um, to really become the key person of influence at that exhibition, become the bell of the ball, uh, if uh, if you can at the exhibition. The other thing that we've done, you know, some successful things that we've done. Um, let let me let me mention why exhibitions can work against you, and then I'll talk about how you can combat that. So one of the reasons exhibitions can work against you 
is because from the consumer's point of view, the person who walks into the exhibition, they are suddenly spoiled for choice. They have 300 exhibitors to look at. So their experience is there's one of me and there's 300 of you to go and uh, have a look at. So they suddenly feel like they're massively oversupplied with options. Um, the For the person who's exhibiting, you might normally throughout day to day feel like you've got lots and lots of people to talk to and you you know you're um, you know you're really special at what you do and then suddenly you go to an exhibition an industry exhibition and there's 20 other companies that do similar things to you and you think oh wait a second we don't feel very special anymore because we're in close proximity um, to uh, to 20 other companies that do similar things to us so the demand and supply tension Within that micro environment, the demand and supply tension isn't the same as it is in the normal environment outside of that event. So what you have to do is somehow rectify the demand and supply tension within that environment. So you've got to create scenarios where people are really singling you out as the most important exhibitor of the show. Um, uh, so anything at all you can do that creates uh, people almost lining up um, to see your um, exhibit, all of that sort of stuff. One of the things we did at one show was we got these really bright red bags with um, key person of influence and an arrow pointing up at the person holding the bag. Nice. Uh, and in the bag we had a free copy of the book key person of influence and all of our dates and our pens and all that sort of stuff. And on the earliest part of the very first day, we... Um, uh, each day, we made sure that hundreds of people got a, got this bag, so that all day people are walking around with a bag that says "Key Person of Influence." And it was massively oversized; it was too big. You know, it was only for a book, but we had the big red bag um, that people could could um, could walk around with, and um, and then people would come up to our stand, going, "Oh, is this where I get the Key Person of Influence bag?" Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and it basically created a steady stream of like little people walk. People were walking around advertising us the whole the whole day um, just by carrying the bag. Um, <laughs> you know, so that was that was a great strategy. The other thing that we would do is um, if I've got a speaking slot, I would we would promote I'd have a speaking slot in the afternoon and we would promote all day. This is the speaking. This is the speak. We have little cards. 3 p.m. Daniel Daniel's speaking. These are the key points he's covering. Um, here, you know, he, this is where it is. Go go and see him speak. Um, and then I might have 80 people who come into that auditorium at that time and, and speak. And then what I will do is I'll say, um, we're over at stand 403, which is here, and I'll put it up on my slides. I'll say anyone who goes over there, we've we've got a free copy of the book, Key Person of Influence, so that you can come along and swap your business card for a book um, at our stand and then you can you can uh, get that but we only have say 50 or 100 copies of the book so make sure you do that in the next you know hour or so before we run out so I deliver a presentation lots of value uh, and then tell people go go across and get the key person of influence book and then what will happen typically is pretty much within the first 20 30 minutes lots of people go wandering up to the stand and now we've got a, a lineup of eight eight to ten people standing in front of the stand waiting to talk to us and waiting to to do something and that everyone who wasn't at my talk suddenly comes up and says well what's going on over here 
So thanks to Daniel for that conversation and we are now heading over to our most listened to episode of the year, which is from Steph Appleby over at Hanover Communications. If you remember, Steph was the Gresley Town Football Club uh, fan, but he's not talking about that in this clip. He's actually talking about being authentic and consistent with your brand as part of an aligned marketing campaign. So over to Steph. Summary of what you're saying it is about... Um being aware of who your brand and what your proposition is, what problem it solves, and then keeping that consistency regardless of whether you're talking through trade media, whether you're talking through social media, directly through a sales force, through kind of PR and, and building your profile. It's about really understanding who you are, who your audience are, and what's going to influence them. Yeah, 100%. And, and when we're, to, we're using the phrase when you're talking to them, but but. I think the, the the crucial thing is about consistency, not just in what your key messages are. So understanding how to talk to them. So what are your key messages? So defining what they are. So if there is a particular brand campaign that you have, and that brand campaign encompasses all of the potential things within the toolkit. So you'll be talking to them through social media, you'll be talking to them through print advertising, you'll be talking to them at exhibitions and face-to-face. And, and -face. So deciding what those messages are and, and how to talk to them and what you're promoting is absolutely crucial and making sure the same message goes through all of those. But it's about the look and feel as well. So if you have, with most, most of the people that, if you're putting on a trade exhibition or a trade show, or if you're doing any brand campaign, no matter what channel you're pushing it through, you kind of think if you've got the right audience and you've got the right areas through which to talk to those audience, they might see your message on a couple of those different platforms, right? So going back to what I know and what we know, what, what we know traditionally know, is if you're putting on a, a, a trade show for retailers or for wholesalers, fantastic. But don't go to that trade show with a different message to the one that you might put in the trade publications. And make sure that you've got this kind of consistency that goes through, both in terms of what you're talking to them about, but also how it looks. So if they've seen that advert or they've seen that editorial coverage and in those things you've used a certain language and you've used a certain um, God, color scheme or tagline or whatever it might be, reinforce that across all of the channels that you do. Hammer them home. You know, that, that old kind of adage that everybody will come back to about how it takes six or seven or eight or the number changes depending on who you talk to, six or seven or eight times for a message to sink in properly and for somebody to take an action off the back of it. Well, bear that in mind, because the trade show might be the first time they hear it, but it might be the eighth time they hear it. And actually, if they're hearing something different, your message isn't gonna land. And it is important to have that, that marketing toolkit using all of those different parts of it, but the message is the crucial one. It's a really interesting point, again, that you make, um, and it takes me back to a blog we wrote a couple of weeks ago about who was responsible within an organization for a trade show? Was it sales or marketing? And actually, if, if marketing don't get involved and sales are left on their own to deliver a trade show, that's when you can get the disjointedness between the messaging that's gone out in through the marketing team and actually then the sales team trying to deliver it, but not necessarily having all the right tools or the right strap lines or the logos. And it becomes very inconsistent and visitors are kind of looking at your stand thinking, yeah, but I read something completely different in trade press last week. I, I don't get which bit I'm supposed to believe. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an amazingly, a really good point is that we've seen examples of, of trade shows where obviously the marketing team is the, is the team that has decided to exhibit at the trade show. They've decided that 
you know, brand A is our focus for this trade show. So that's what we're going to be pushing out. And then they staffed the stand at the trade show with whatever random bodies they can pull together to get there, right? There's been very little thought that might have gone into it in terms of who's there and what they're saying. In the meantime, for the six months prior to that, your regional sales force have been going out and quite fantastically selling in this brand into whatever channel it is that they need to sell this into. And yet you come back to the trade show and they're now telling a different message. The people with whom you've entrusted this message before, all of a sudden, they're not the right ones. So there's that side of it. But there's also this side of it, which is the marketing team might put on the trade show and then say, right, this trade show is taking place in Manchester. And so what we will do is find the nearest regional sales reps, the nearest RDMs or BDMs or whatever, whatever terminology they might be used, who are near the Northwest to come and stand at that stand uh, and, and talk about it there. But they're actually, they don't then talk to the marketing team about that. So they don't, the marketing team doesn't tell them who's going to be at this trade show. Are they new customers? Are they existing customers? What stage of that kind of, there's a lot of terrible marketing terms, but what state of the purchase cycle are they at, right? Like, where are they and, and who's likely to be there? So what, what conversations are they likely to have? Now, the marketing team should, in theory, to your, your point there, work really closely with the sales team to get that right. So everybody's on the same page. Everybody knows what they should be expecting within reason. I mean, there'll always be surprises there, but, but make sure that, that everyone's having these conversations beforehand because one of the biggest mistakes you'll, you'll ever make when you're going to these exhibitions is not thinking clearly enough about, yeah, the message, but also who you're going to be telling the message to. And thanks to Steph for his commentary there. And we're now going to head over to our conversation with Alison Jones. So Alison is uh, the publisher of our book, The Exhibitionist, and has worked in the publishing industry for many years. And she had some really interesting insight around the difference between exhibiting as part of a corporate organisation and then exhibiting when you're the owner of your own business and the things that you need to look out for. So this will be useful for anybody who is bridging those gaps between the corporate world and their own business. So you, in your time, have been to several book fairs, I, I guess mainly are the sorts of exhibitions that you've gone to. And just tell us kind of what your general reflections were on trade shows, kind of before you started working with us on the book, both as an exhibitor and as a visitor. Yeah, and it's very interesting because, of course, my uh, trade show experience changed radically when I stopped being a corporate employee and became a business owner. So as you know, for Oxford University Press, for, um, for Macmillan, I just used to sort of trot along and, and I'd have meetings scheduled for me by my assistant and I'd turn up and there'd be this beautiful stand there, you know, the envy of the fair and, and there'd be my table and my guests would come along and, and I'd go in the back room and hang my coat up and there would be sandwiches and, you know, Barocca and... <laughs> Baroque is quite important in trade shows, actually. I yeah. think that's what my one hot tips. <laughs> and then suddenly, I was my own company and I was organising everything. And I suddenly saw it from a very, very different perspective. And it was all about the logistics, which yeah, of course <laughs> hadn't been before. It was all about remembering to have the, um, the sticker to send the box back to the warehouse afterwards. You know, stupid things like that that I just I had to think of. But also massively, massively more enjoyable because instead of just 
rocking up and, and seeing people and kind of going home again, I felt part of that whole kind of trade show community. You know, you'd be there setting up your stand when there's just the, the guys, you know, checking the lights and stuff. <laughs> and, and, and then at the end, so I, I feel like my experience of trade shows is much more raw, but satisfying <laughs> these days, which is, which is really fun. <laughs> but very, very different. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting point, actually, because we've exhibited at both sides of that spectrum as well as, as on behalf of big corporates and with um, SMEs. And you do just get such a different perspective when you're working with the kind of owner operators and, and the corporate businesses and um, the kind of advice that we give and the consultancy, although it's all on a similar theme. I think when you are a business owner and you're there and you're meeting people and there's that feedback and you know, people are either saying good things about the product or service you're selling or giving you some not so positive feedback. It's quite hard to take. Whereas if you're just kind of there on behalf of your employer, then everything seems a bit easy. Although I've never been to a trade show where there were sandwiches in the back room before. I've totally oh. missed out on that in 15 years of exhibiting. So Yeah, no, I, I, it was a horrible moment when I realized that, you know, there wasn't, A, there wasn't a back room and B, there weren't sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, you tried to get throw my... a cereal bar down behind, uh, behind the scenes so that nobody That's could right. see on your stands. Continuing on our whistle-stop tour of the brilliant conversations we have had this year, we're going right back to early on in 2019 and focusing on something that we bang on about all the time, which is about setting those objectives up front for a trade show and really being clear about what it is you're hoping to achieve. And this conversation coming up is with Emma Cartmel, who is talking about exactly that, what you want to achieve, and then how do you go about doing it at a show. So over to Emma. Absolutely. So a lot of your time, I guess, is spent with exhibitors who are going to be at trade shows or, or events where they're trying to um, attract potential clients and a, a potential event managers. So what really frustrates you most where you think exhibitors could just get so much more value out of this event, but they're just missing it? I think there's something on the, there's, you know, I mean, there could be lots of things. And sometimes it's a tiny, it's just about attention to detail. And in fact, I think the biggest barrier for exhibitors is actually time. It's, it's not necessarily knowledge, it's, it's about actually setting the time aside. So there's pre, during and post show. So pre-show, there's a million and one things that exhibitors could be doing. But that gets, it creates overwhelm, it just creates chaos. And the reality is they should be doing a few things very well as opposed to getting overwhelmed by all the, all the cool things that they could be doing. So again, it's really clear are really important to be clear about what it is that you're trying to achieve, what's the end game, what's the outcome, and then say, okay, if we want to achieve that, what are the critical drivers to get there? We have to be at the show, what we're going to do at the show. To get that to happen at the show, what do we need to do pre-show? And it's probably just a few things that could be done really well without trying to do a big scattergun approach at just telling everybody anything and, and hoping, hoping for the best. So I think that pre-planning is is really important and you could probably just spend half a day with your team just thinking that through and then you'll naturally do a few a few things that that's in alignment with that during the show you still see even you know now people not engaging with people on their stand um even our own show we had one of our uh, exhibitors who is fantastic um on the stand and she said to me She'd seen somebody about three hours in, started chatting to him, and he said, you know, you're the first person I've spoke, spoken to me all day. 
And it's like, how is it he's been here for a couple of hours and nobody has gone out and engaged with this guy? And, and it's, it is difficult for some people, but there's ways of doing that. And it's about putting the right people on the stand so that they can engage. And if you have really bubbly people that don't mind, sometimes physically, literally jumping out in front of people and chatting to them and getting the conversation going, you can then hand them over to the person who has all the details, who can actually share the information and get the brief off the people and listen and, and do all that. It's important to have different people on your stand doing different roles. And you still see people uh, at, at all different shows on their phones, eating, talking amongst themselves and, you know, or just, uh, you know, reading because, you know, the show. And then, yeah, I see other people. Um, we had a, a guy exhibit with us a few years ago and I was just watching what was happening. And when he when his stand was quiet, he was going into the main coffee area and literally just chatting to people and dragging them back to his stand and saying, bring your coffee with you, I'll talk to you, I'll show you what I'm doing. And it's that energy about not, I think it's you know taking responsibility for the fact that I'm here for the day and I need to make the best out of this. And if there's nobody walking by my stand right now, I will go and get somebody and talk to them. And now we're heading across the pond to our conversation with... Lindsay Anvik in America, where she was talking about how to use social media to maximise your success at a show, but also how a trade show in itself provides you with really, really rich content that you can use in a lot of your marketing across the year. So over to Lindsay. Do you think that if you're dealing with um, a squad who are all quite nervous about using social media and their ability, is it better to have just one person who's responsible for creating all your content who really knows what they're doing? Would that be something you'd recommend? I think it's good to have a ringleader always and, you know, to maybe have someone who can approve something before you put it up because you never know. <laughs> um, just to double check, you know, of course we want to be trusting and delegate, but we also want to verify that's the part of management. So you know, absolutely, you know, having someone that can be sort of the master and, and also someone who can maybe see opportunities and say, you guys should get together for a photo or why don't you take a video of, you know, you know, her playing with this new new toy or product or whatever it is um, and sort of getting the ball rolling and, and having them being in charge of that would be a great idea. So just thinking back to creating great content at um, trade shows and we're hearing a lot about Twitter walls or Instagram stories or Instagram walls or different frames that you can use? What are some of the different techniques that exhibitors can use to create really rich content that will get seen and get shared at trade shows? I mean, I think that stories are great. You know, Instagram stories or Facebook stories are great because if, if you miss it, you miss out. So, and it also doesn't clog up your feed. So it's sort of a great way to get sort of fun, irreverent posts out there. That's what I think that it's best for. So, you know, catching someone in a moment, um, you know, capturing your employees being sort of silly um, can be fun. Capturing them in their personality. Maybe they are, you know, need two cups of coffee in the morning to get started to, you know, we all need caffeine to get through trade shows, but maybe they, you know, are someone that likes to, you know, have, um, you know, a cupcake every day in the afternoon. So I think, you know, also, you know, figuring out what the, interesting points are about your staff or whatever it is that your booth is and trying to hone in on some of those things and tell some of those personal stories or having a cocktail, you know, after the show, I think we all need a cocktail at the end of the day. I mean, at least I do after every, you know, at the end of the day of every trade show. And so 
sharing that kind of thing and, and great restaurants and things like that, because other people will be looking at that and saying, oh, we went to that restaurant last night, or oh, that's fun, or who's this booth? I don't know them, but I know they like to have a good cocktail, so we, we may get along. So I think, you know, sharing personal stories and showing personalities is, is a good sort of start for content. And our next conversation gets the award for the most, the location I was most jealous of when doing a podcast as we spoke to Andy Higginbotham from GES. And Andy was sitting in a beautifully restored mill uh, in his office. It, was, it looked absolutely gorgeous. But he's talking a lot about um, stand design and some of the tricks and tips with stand design and how to get that right to really maximise your presence at a show. He's the expert, having worked in the industry for years. So here's our conversation with Andy. So regardless of share or scheme or whatever any, anybody books, what are the sort of three or four key tips that you would give to exhibitors when they're starting to think about designing their stand and what they want it to look like? Yeah, um, yeah, that, that's the key, isn't it, really? I, I think it doesn't matter whether you're a, a small engineering company working out of a very small unit in Kettering. No, no offence to Kettering there, by the way. <laughs> Or whether you're, you know, Lockheed Martin or, or you know, uh, Total, you're a brand. So I think one of the first rules is, is just remember that. Keep it on brand, however loose or tight that can be, whether you've got brand guidelines or whether the brand guidelines are in your head. Try and keep it on brand. Don't. It's, it's never really a great idea to try and pretend to be something you're not. It can be a bit of a release exhibiting because you can, but that leads you down a certain sort of path of um, theming and gimmicks and then things start to go wrong and it's like, well, what's this got to do with you know lasers and it, it can go a bit strange when you see exhibiting that's gone a bit too far off plot so i think keeping it off brand using themes correctly but sparingly i suppose it sounds a bit pessimistic but sparing use of themes can be a very very good it's, it's sort of easier to flesh it out than pull it back once you've gone too far it's difficult to come back but you can always add a little bit more content there so you see some very good theming but it needs to be a very strong brand behind it otherwise the values disappear one bold idea, one strong idea is obviously always a good thing from a psychological point of view. Um, if people walk onto a stand and there's a, um, a simple but clear idea, whether it be a colour or a, a message or a, whatever it happens to be, if you're bold and you're confident in that one idea, that t confidence tends to exude through to the, to the visitor, which is why you're there. And I think that could be something such as instead of one big plasma, um, what, instead of going for the obvious, you know, biggest LED or plasma screen we can afford, 55 inch, let's go for two or three smaller ones and repeat the image. Therefore, the the confidence in repetition has a certain value to the approaching visitor. The instant reaction before you've even thought about it is, well, it must be good because they've repeated it three times. Mm -hmm. That's coming from retail. I saw Nike do that years and years ago with rows of plasma showing the same feed, and you, you don't even necessarily even look at the content. You know, it must be good because they've repeated it so many times. There's a certain sort of recency bias to it, and you can understand that, you know, that might filter its way through to exhibiting. And that works really, really well with smaller scale AV, which is effectively cheaper these days than it, than it used to be. So it's an accessible thing for shell scheme exhibitors as well as space only. Um, and then there are a few other things imagery, scale, context. You know, it goes back to theming a little bit, but, you know, using really big faces on stands, smiling faces, happy, joyous people who are, you know, I'm not talking about the staff, I'm talking about the imagery. That can be very, very powerful. You know, knocking things into black and white can be powerful for the certain reasons. Um, changes in scale, things that are out of context. You know, these are all sort of easy psychological triggers that if you can build it again back into the first point about making sure it's still generally on brand, 
they can be really, really powerful, especially from a distance when you're changing in scale. You can see something in the distance that looks sort of interesting 40 feet away. You're probably going to take a closer look when you get six feet away. And, it, and that leads to the last one, I would say, which is um, texture and colour and detailing. When you're on a stand, you could have a very, very simple stand. Maybe you're the guy who ran out of budget. I don't know. But one or two nice features on the stand that are subtle but visual enough to, to remember, they can be really powerful. because, it, And that, that could bring me back to my earlier, I just touched on the idea of smell, aroma. If you've got an aroma on a stand, whether it be car leather, new coffee, uh, you know, coffee or... Uh, cut grass or, or something more themed obviously um that could be a great trigger because your know, factory glands obviously will give you that memory for a long time and if you could then pick up on that with some post-show advertising or marketing sorry to uh oh yeah yeah you, you the guys with the really good coffee or you know you were the guys that smelled of i don't know medieval rope you know it, it's a tie back into a marketing campaign isn't it and as long as it's all considered as a campaign with the show in the middle not just the show on its own then you've got some real chance of getting some driving some ROI out of the show but uh, but yeah detailing is a really good one and a, an example recently I went to a stand which was very very plain uh, I can't remember what the show was but it was, it was I think it was P&M series I think it was IFSEC and there was a stand that was very very simple I was only there as a visitor walking around and we hadn't built it and but it had a really really nice porthole on the door and it was um, uh, a sort of teardrop shape a kidney shape and I'm a big advocate of quality portholes weird that that sounds <laughs> and um, it, it, I remember it now. I've just used it as an example, so it must have been good. That was in June, so several <laughs> months later, I remember the quality portal. And it was it was a requirement. You have to have a portal on the door in most shows, especially if sex health and safety based show. So um, the fact that you remember it becomes the trigger, doesn't it? It's, yeah. uh, it's those little tiny things. The quality of the detailing on a counter, some laminates and backlighting could be the best 500 quid you spend you might spend 50 grand on a stand or 10 grand on a stand but you know just spending a few hundred pounds on something of that nature could be the, the little trigger that helps you the most and finally we are giving another award for the only podcast guest to get hot tubs into his conversation this year so we asked mark enderby of maco uk who's a client that we've worked with this year uh, what his favourite memory from a trade show was and it involves lots of men in Lycra or lots of men, lots of people in Lycra in a hot tub so let's see what more Mark has to say about that So what's the funniest thing that you've seen happen at a trade show if you're allowed to share it with us and you know, please don't feel you have to name the guilty parties No, I will do and I, I love this question it's making me smile already um, <laughs> and it's out of industry so I can't upset anyone, I hope um, <laughs> but I was... I was at um, the London Triathlon a few times and back a few years ago for people that go, um, there was quite a big exhibition there as well from sports suppliers and stuff. And um, one year there was a, um, a supplier of like luxury therapeutic hot tubs, etc. And after you finished the triathlon, there was just people getting a beer and just jumping in this exhibitor's pool <laughs> um, and enjoying a, a, a nice luxury post run swim bike massage and masseuse in this luxury hot tub um, and the exhibitors I don't think we're really planning on that they <laughs> sell them and then at the time there's all these people just finishing these events all sweaty and horrible and jumping in these hot tubs and it was just it was it was quite brilliant um it, it did make me giggle <laughs> yeah I think um 
that sounds like it was fairly unexpected. I thought when you were first talking about it, it was kind of their plan to showcase how amazing our hot tub is for um, for massaging your your muscles after you've done events. But I'm guessing they just weren't expecting all you hot and sweaty triathletes to jump in there. I think, yeah, I think everyone just went for, I think, one person <laughs> took the plunge, as it were, and that, that was it. Everyone thought, oh, that's a good idea, and we'll jump in. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it was good. <laughs> well, it, one tip in there is that, uh, you know, people attract people, so if you have a busy stand, then it will always attract people. So just put exactly. a big hot tub in the middle of your stand, and you, you never know. I'm looking forward to seeing your hot tub at, uh, at the <laughs> um, I can't say. <laughs> <laughs> So there you have it, our best bits of the Exhibitionist Podcast 2019. That was such a hard job to pull out the points that we thought were really relevant and useful for our listeners. There were so many great conversations this year. So thank you so much to every single guest that we've had, but also every single listener that we've had who's downloaded or listened to an episode. We really, really appreciate you being on the journey with us and thank you for all the feedback that you have given us. So there really remains little more for me to say than we wish you all a very exciting and peaceful holiday season. We want to say thank you to every client, every commentator, every contact we've had a conversation with this year. We have worked with some amazing companies. We've achieved some brilliant results through our exhibitors and we've learned an awful lot from everybody across the trade. So everybody who supported us or worked with us, thank you so much. We do really, really appreciate it. We're finishing up at the end of the week, but no doubt we'll be back in the office during the Christmas break as we have a really busy January coming up, mainly with a cheese roadshow, which is a new one for us. But if you want to get in touch with us, if you've got any problems that you need solving or help you need, then we will be around for the whole of the festive period. Just click over to www.inspiringexhibitors.com. If you need to get in touch with us, you can find all the details there. Here's to an amazing year of exhibitioning in 2020. We hope your plans are coming together really well. Have a fantastic Christmas. All the very best for the new year and happy exhibitioning. Hop over now to inspiringexhibitors.com to subscribe to our newsletters, blogs and future podcasts, keeping you up to date with industry insight. While there, you can also find out more about our new book, The Exhibitionist, inspiring trade show excellence once again thank you for listening